As you're turning, let me give you a little bit of background on this text this past week. Um, I, uh, wow, someone is like, if that's your kid, there's murder going on right now, okay? There's murder, I, I don't mean like getting, I'm like, someone's causing that, okay? Uh, that's what we do, uh, so we beat them into uh, submission. It works well, you can tell. <laughs> so anyways, I get down, and I'm, I'm still I, I'm working on this on Friday, and I, and I get down, and, and, and my notes keep growing and growing and growing until, uh, well, to put this in perspective, typically I preach with around 11 or 12 pages of notes, and I was hitting 17 and 18. And I, and I told Sarah, I said, uh, I said, I am just really, uh, really struggling this week. Um, I don't know, I don't know why, I, I do know why, um, but some of this, I just got to the end of this, this, this little section, and I'm going, like, I just told her, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around it, and I just cannot get it wrapped around it. I said, I said, I can I could preach it, um, like, you know, because my responsibility is to deliver the word on Sunday, and I could do it, but I, I like to understand it, at least it, to some extent, better than what I'm teaching. Does that make sense? Like, I want to know more and, be, and understand more than just that which I am able to relay. Uh, kind of, I think it's a better place as a teacher to be. Um, that, well, anyways, I'll leave it at that. So, plus I just wanted to understand it because it's God's word and it's about him and it's about his world and the life that we live. And I'm just going, I, this is just tough. Um, so finally I made the, uh, with prayer, the executive decision to cut out like four pages of notes. Uh, and I set those aside. I, I mean, I strategically went through that and go, okay, this stuff here, um, we're just going to have to cover later. And it was, it was good. I'm not saying I completely understand what's going on here. Um, but this, the other, st- it was neat because as I began to work through it, God began to say, okay, look, just concentrate here. Concentrate here, here, here. And we can get to the other stuff a little bit later. Um, and so, uh, so that's, uh, that's what we are going to do today. We are going to not... And, and, and I hope you don't expect us every time we come to the text. Like, my goal every time we come to the text is to, like, spill it all. Uh, and hence, that's why we, we, we're here for long periods of time. And even still, we still don't get to spill it all. Um, because the depths of God's word and his revelation of himself, we could never reach uh, even the beginning of the depths of that. So, um, if it's okay with you guys, I am going to scoot this stage out a little bit um, because I'm like squeaking and it's going to drive me nuts, okay? I'm, I'm not OCD. Well, I am a little bit, but um, oh, that would be all the better. Okay. Well, usually I'm like right in the center, right? You know, I'm like in the center and, and anyways, now I'm standing on the crack. Uh, I don't like standing on the crack, but I'm on the crack. So anyways, all that to say, Ecclesiastes. Uh, let's begin reading, um, actually, I'm gonna, let me ask, let me start off with this, with this question. Now that we've been plugging through this stuff for a few weeks, uh, I want to challenge 
you're thinking, sorry, I just, it, it, my stand's going, okay, maybe if I didn't weigh so much, it would help too. Okay, all right, let me corral this in and let's, let's think through this stuff. So now that we've been working through Ecclesiastes, uh, some pretty thick stuff, let me, let me, let me challenge, challenge you right from the very beginning today with this question, with this question. If everything is vanity under the sun, everything that is apart from God, then do we simply seek meaning and fulfillment via these avenues, but do so by sprinkling God in the mix? Is that where we find meaning, fulfillment, satisfaction? Because obviously these tasks that, you know, wisdom and working and um, that we're going to talk about today, working and pleasure, I mean, those things are the thing. We're going to continue doing those. So we're not learning in Ecclesiastes that we stop doing those things. Um, so is the fix, if you will, is what Ecclesiastes is telling us is that we simply continue doing those things. And like salt and pepper, we shake God into the mix. Is that the solution? Um, and I know I'm asking that in kind of a leading way, but try to not think of it in a, a leading way if you can. I just can't think of a better way to ask that question. So, is that the answer? So, do we find meaning in the task and do so of this life by simply adding God into the recipe? Maybe even concentrating on God hard and working Him in. Maybe He is the main ingredient. How would we understand uh, this? And I'm not going to answer the question, and we're not going to probably answer that question today. But I want us to continue thinking through that. How does that work then? If the issue is there is no meaning fulfillment apart from God with these things, uh, but we still continue doing wisdom, knowledge seeking, so on and so forth, do we just simply add God into that mix and that makes it all better? Is that the solution? So, with that said, let's work through the text. The thesis statement so far has been vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So that's where we're working, that's where we're beginning this at uh, in Ecclesiastes. All, life is empty. Now what happens is it kind of it begins to unravel uh, uh, in a good way here a little bit, but he begins to modify that slightly here in this text. Uh, in this passage, we will see his first slight modification of that thesis statement that all is vanities. Right now, Kohelet is going to continue addressing and dismissing any possible avenues by which humans could try to find satisfaction and fulfillment in place of God. So he's already done wisdom, he's done pleasure, and he's going to continue down that road to, to address those things that we could potentially try to find satisfaction from apart from God. So when wisdom can't supply meaning, when pleasure-seeking cannot supply meaning, this leads us to chapter 18, or chapter 2, verse 18. Um, one quick note, understand, these are major areas of life that Kohelet, or the author of Ecclesiastes, is addressing here. I mean, think about this. Wisdom. That's a major part of our lives. Pleasure-seeking or enjoyment of this. That's a major part of our lives. And knowledge in relation to wisdom in the first section is a major part of our lives. And now, he's going to address working and toil. That's another major part of our lives. These are big uh, heavy sections, if you will, um, of our lives. So with that said, chapter 2, verse 18. He says, I hated 
all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a son than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind fun text. I want to pray for us. I'm going to pray particularly for myself in these moments as we work through this text. Father, uh, your, uh, these words have been a fresh reminder this week of my inadequacy and dependency. Also, though, Father, a fresh reminder of your, sus- your sustaining power, of your wisdom and your infinite might and power to work in the lives of those whom you call your people. And Father, I understand that in these moments that uh, the goal is not for me to speak, but is for your word to speak. And so Father, I just pray that, um, that hearts would be both receiving and understanding, and that the words would be clear. Father, that your word would do what only your word can do. Uh, so, Father, I just pray in these moments that, uh, that they would honor you, would glorify you. And, Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, in the midst of this, we, we're going to crank through this pretty quickly um, and uh, in order to prepare for Lord's Supper that we're also going to in, partake in today as well. So, Let's, uh, let's rock and roll. So Kohelet here takes us from the co- contemplative life to the pleasure-filled life to now the active life of work, vocation, projects as a way that meaning can be supplied for life. Uh, he says basically, I bet that I can find meaning via my work, that which I labor at. It is successful and beneficial, and you say this, this is, I know right from the very beginning, some of you are going, well, I hate my job, I don't try and find meaning at my job, Uh, I flip burgers, I work on assembly line, whatever it is, Uh, I work on computers all day, I can't stand it, it just makes a paycheck, Uh, and I would say to you that the danger is still there, Um, you could find meaning in the fact that you toil through your job. So it's my ability to labor through this and push through the muck that I do not like. And you begin to find meaning in your 
hard work or in your uh, piety that you're going to forego your enjoyment so that you can pay for other things. Uh, you also, there's a risk of finding this joy and fulfillment in the products that are derived from your work, a.k.a. a paycheck. Uh, maybe it's that money that provides for those other hobbies and things that you do that you're f- trying to find meaning in, and that's closely, again, related to, to work. And basically, Kohelet says, if you're trying to find meaning in your work, you will not find it there. This, this passage breaks into kind of three sections, verses 18 and 19. Kohelet tells us why work won't work as the way of providing meaning and satisfaction. That's 18 and 19. Then 20 through 23, he will tell us why work alone, apart from God, only leads to despair. And then 24 and 26, he will tell us about the kind of work that satisfies. So that's kind of the the breakup of the sections here today. So the first main point, no matter how temporarily enjoyable it may be, work cannot supply the answer to meaning apart from God. Your job, your work cannot supply. Work cannot provide the answer in our quest to find satisfaction and meaning in this life. Apart from God, work is but drudgery, toil, and emptiness. Um, Let's first, what we need to define here is the word work. What does he mean by the word work? Uh, Because in the Hebrew, the word work is a very broad term. Um, uh, Lots of things are consumed underneath the idea of work. And I think that that's his, his intention here. I don't think his intention is to draw down to a very specific, narrowed understanding, but I think it's to keep it more broad. Uh, to include multiple different things. So what could be included uh, in this term? Oftentimes in, in Hebrew it's used uh, sometimes for toil, that which we toil for. Um, generally in other places it's used to refer to our daily responsibility. So like our job, uh, that's a common use for this word. Uh, but it can also apply to greater quests uh, and tasks such as uh, social reform, political reform. Um, those are things that we can labor at. So think of this as things that we are laboring at, and this does include our job, and that's a, probably a large aspect of it, that which we do to provide for our families, but um, it involves much more. So try not to limit your thinking to just that little small box. There's a lot more. So laboring at your uh, relationships with other people, that could be an area which you try to find meaning in. Uh, social reform, so on and so forth. So, Kohelet, though, has already, if we take a look at the context, has already uh, rehearsed, if you will, or given to us the different ways he sought work as a way of finding fulfillment. Uh, if you look, if you have your Bibles, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. He says, what does a man have in all his, what advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? So what advantage is there to it? And this will culminate in today's text, the answer to that question. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, he says, I enlarged my works. Chapter 2, verse 10, uh, he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. That's a very key verse for us today. 
Then if you go on in verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And then again in verse 17, he says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and is striving after the wind. And then again in 18, he says, I hated my toil in which I toil on a son, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So here, if we could summarize all of this up, Kohelet is saying, upon reflection, he has hated the fruit, the ends, the effects of his labor. But it's interesting that if we recall verse 10, while he was doing his labor, what does he say in verse 10? And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Let's think about this. He, he enjoyed it. He got a lot of results from his toil, from his work. He enjoyed, if you will, the results of the labor. But what's, what happens is when he pulls back and reflects upon meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction, ultimate meaning, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction, and he asks, can this work, even though I enjoyed, even though I enjoyed all of this work, can it supply ultimate satisfaction, ultimate meeting, ultimate fulfillment? And he says with, he answers that with an emphatic, no, it cannot. It cannot. I think at this point it's important for us to differentiate between a couple things. First of all, that his frustration is not with the work. He enjoyed the work. He enjoyed the work. He's not frustrated that his work isn't producing anything. He is not distressed at his production. He is distressed by the inconsequentiality of his labors. The fact that those labors ultimately must be left to someone else. Solomon here, uh, or Kohelet writing as Solomon, is griping because the fruit of his labor has not served to fulfill his deepest yearnings and desires as a human being. That is his frustration. So he's not looking at his, and, and this is important for us. Because we look at our job and many of us complain about our job. Anybody here complain about your job ever? Yeah, yeah. I don't ever complain about my job. Y'all are sinners. Y'all are beautifully perfect, so no. Uh, yes, we, we like to complain about uh, our job. We, we like to complain about what it doesn't provide. We sing songs about its fruitlessness. fruitlessness. Uh, there's a Travis Tritt song about that. You can go look that up later. Uh, we gripe all the time about our work. It's wearing me out, right? It's wearing me out. Anybody ever said that? You said that? It's wearing, I've said that. It's wearing me out. My boss is a jerk. I've never said that, okay? Maybe other choice words, but uh, not, uh, not, I don't know if I've called him a jerk. Uh, you know, lightning rod from heaven. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have 
well, anyways, we'll just go on from there. My, my coworkers are not pulling their weight. Uh, anybody have said that? I've not said that, all right, just for the record. Uh, I love you. All right. But uh, the important thing is that Kohelet's not complaining about, he's not saying his job is boring, is terrible. He's saying, I enjoyed it. But what he's saying is that the net result, the, the end result is that it did not provide ultimate meaning, fulfillment, satisfaction for my life. And that's why I'm frustrated. That is what is vanity. He's saying, you know, I worked. I, I was very productive. I even enjoyed my work. But there is no satisfaction, no meaning. Um, satisfaction does not come from the income derived from work. But you see, that, that's part of where I think we get caught because Satan feeds us this lie. He tells us more will do it, more will give us satisfaction, and that is what we are looking for. I mean, and, and again, everything tries to sell us on that we need that item, that product. Um, and it's easy to get caught up in that and not even realize. But the preacher says he's had more. He's had the most and it didn't do it. Right, so these guys, baseball players, making what Votto makes like, what, 11 million a year or something like that. Um, you know, these guys making, Solomon's saying, look, I had all that. And it didn't work. And so what's interesting is us, who, who, who make much less than 11 million a year. If you're making 11 million, none of you tithing like you make 11 million. Uh, so at least at this point, I don't think anybody's making 11 million a year. So... Most of us are making a little much less, and we think, I mean, here's really the, the thing, and, and this is to myself as well. This is what doesn't make any sense. We, with much more limited resources, pursue satisfaction and fulfillment through our resources as if it's even a slight possibility that we could reach it. Does that make sense? Like, we don't have anything compared to 11 million dollars or Solomon and we we pursue it as if there's a possibility that we might find satisfaction and fulfillment apart from God like we use our 30 grand a year thinking that it's going to get us something you know what I'm saying like I, I still do it too okay uh, thinking that that next item that I purchase might fulfill me Let's go back to the text. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether it will be, a, be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used, and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Notice what he draws our, to our attention. He attributes the futility, the futility of work to these facts. Number one, everything that we do has to be left to a successor. So everything that you're working for, the satisfaction, the fulfillment, and all that that you're, trying, that you're trying to find in these tasks and the results from those tasks, all will be left behind. So what's the point? And that's what he's saying. There is no point. We all die. From one standpoint, we don't fully enjoy the fruits of our labors. Think about that. So we buy this house that we are so excited about, and, and we think this is going to fulfill us, 
and you only get to enjoy it for 40 years if you stay there your life and pay it off. And then the fruit of your labor, purchasing, building, whatever, that house, you don't get to enjoy that for the rest of eternity. You get the point. Someone else gets to enjoy that house and the fruit of your labor once you're gone. So you will never fully experience the fruit of the kind of labor that he's talking about here. Because it all ends. Therefore, it's all vanity. It's futile. He says there's also no guarantee. The other thing that he draws to our attention, that there's, that there's no guarantee that the one successor will be wise. So that which you wisely labored for could be left to a fool. I think you see that often. You see often uh, people who build huge estates leave it all to their 20-something-year-old son who then squanders it all, you know, and just destroys the whole thing. Wise, at least in some respects, and a fool, at least in some respects. Uh, The third thing, he says, notice that the foolish inheritor will have control over the usage of all things that this one has left a legacy, um, of this one who has left a legacy or has left these accomplishments. And notice that it all, once again, goes back in the box. From a couple weeks ago, we talked about how it all goes back in the box. I mean, think about this. Think about it. Think about the millions and millions of dollars given by conservative Christians over the past 200 years to institutions that now work hard at destroying everything that those Christians stood for. I'll give you a, a specific example. Um, uh, the seminary that I, that I graduated from, um, I did some research. I knew some of this had happened, so I did a little more research. And, uh, and it was founded by a guy by the names of uh, James P. Boyce, and a great theologian. Um, and he, he writes this in some of his, his proposal um, for this theological school that he wanted to start. And he says this, his first point was this, Not only college graduates, but men with less general education, even a common English education, should be offered such opportunities as theological study as they were prepared prepared for and desired. And he says, the second point, special courses should be provided so that the ablest and most aspiring students might be prepared for service as instructors and original authors. And his third point, and listen to this, this is key, uh, his goal in this is that there should be prepared an abstract of principles or a careful statement of theological belief which every professor in such an institution must sign when inducted into office so as to guard against erroneous and injurious instruction. And then we find ourselves, uh, that institution then a couple hundred years later in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, where they had professors who were with this abstract of principles in place, professors, this is no joke, denying the deity of Christ and teaching against the deity of Christ. And that was a clear, spelled out, principle, belief, doctrinal statement. And here there are professors fighting against everything that that institution was originally founded for. Denial of the orthodox view of the Trinity, denial of the virgin birth, uh, acceptance, wide acceptance of homosexuality, uh, the belief that the abstract of principles was a dead document and that the Bible was a dead document and only alive in the interpretation of us people. So everything that they had 
built this institution on and founded it on is now being warred against now that these guys have died. And what he is saying is that that is vanity. He's saying it all goes back in the box. You leave it all, no matter who you are, you leave it all to those who will come after you. Um, all that the founders had begun this university for had been reversed. Now, thank God I didn't go there during that time period. It would have been quite rough. I would have probably went somewhere else. Um, and God has since reversed a lot of that. But all of that, again, in 40 years could change. All of that could change. This is the kind of futility that the preacher is speaking about. Um, many pursue political, social reform because they think that they can make the world a better place. I have a question. Would Thomas Jefferson recognize the Democratic Party today? Would Abraham Lincoln recognize the Republican Party today? I mean, think about that. Our successors can change everything, and that is what the preacher is thinking about. So our work, apart from God, all goes back in the box and it, at the end of the game. But our work, apart from God, no matter how temporarily enjoyable it may be, can never provide ultimate meaning and satisfaction. And Kohelet says, part of that's because it just simply is going to get left to the person it comes after. Now he takes a further step down this dreary path here, and he says, all work done under the sun leads to despair. Leads to despair. Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from the, all the toil and striving of heart that which he toils beneath the sun? For all these days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even, the night, even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he tells us here that uh, why work apart from God leads to despair. So let's think about this word despair real quick. Yaish, uh, yaish, I think is the Hebrew word. It occurs only here in the Bible. Um, in rabbinic Hebrew, it actually means to give up for lost. To give up for lost. It literally means, I turned to rid my heart of illusions. I turned to rid my heart of illusions. So he says right there, I turn, if you go back to verse 20 and we read that there, he says, so I turn to rid my heart of illusions over the toil of my labors under the sun. What's the illusion? The illusion is of the profitability of his work. That the illusion is that there is good consequences to the work and it's not inconsequentiality of his work. So what he goes on from here then is he gives us a summary of the condition of working apart from God. So he says there's only despair in all work that is done under the sun and all work that's done apart from God. I mean think about the contrast. Look at verse 20. It says so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair or to the, to, to the illusions over the toil of my labors under the sun. And think about 1 Corinthians 15.58 with me. 
He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, we don't have time to unpack that. I just want to, it's kind of like a little inject right there, and, and then we're going to keep pushing on. We're going to keep this in the backdrop. So he's not saying that apart from God, hear this, he's not saying that apart from God, labor might be in vain. He's saying it is in vain. Period. It's not no possibility. It's not those to a certain extent, to its fullest extent. It all is in vain apart from God. And the issue, leaving one's gains to others. Again, that you get to enjoy that for a momentary time. And that which you have earned must be left for someone else. Always. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 23 says, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So the toiler here, the worker here, struggles all day, then tosses and turns at night. Why? Uh, I think from the context, part of its obsession with schemes to amass more wealth. Obsession with ways to, to, to gather more. Uh, maybe that and a combination of being plagued by fears of losing all that he has acquired. Um, so these are the futilities that he focuses on. He shows us, Kohelet shows us that work plus success minus God equals emptiness. No fulfillment. Work is not the way to find meaning in life apart from God. I mean, practical examples of this. I mean, ever seen an inheritance break up a family? Anybody seen that happen? Uh, even seen an inheritance ruin children? I alluded to that earlier. Um, all of your work is going to be left to another. You say, but that will be good for my kids. And Solomon says, yes, and he could be a fool. Uh, even that, by your kids, will only be enjoyed for but a fleeting moment in the vastness of eternity. So these are the futilities that the preacher is speaking about. He says, you cannot find meaning and satisfaction through your work, and your work only leads to despair because all work apart from God must be left behind. Now Kohelet brings us into focus just exactly where the blessing, meaning, and satisfaction comes from. Because that's kind of the tension in the text. He's saying, I enjoyed it, but then there's this over here. So what's he talking about? So verse 24, he says this. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Wow, can we say schizophrenic? Uh, this also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Wow. Verse 25, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Huh. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Wow. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Wow. Uh, it's in, okay, all right. So let's, let's, let's just keep going. So finally, though, finally in, in and Ecclesiastes, I think we get, begin to get a little bit of a light, like a little bit of a glimmer 
uh, like he took his Prozac or something, uh, and he's starting to feel a little bit, uh, you know, all right, none of you got that, sorry, my bad. So he tells us that work done with and for God is one of the greatest blessings of life. Let's kind of trudge through this a little bit. He tells us here about the kind of work that does satisfy. He tells us how work goes from futile, empty exercise and drudgery to a great blessing. The only way to know blessed labor is to receive the blessing of God. And that's kind of our key phrase here that we're going to work from. The only way to know blessed labor is to know the blessing of God. Which, just for a note, this is going to play into the original question I asked. Do we just sprinkle God into the mix? And does that solve the problem? So the turning point for us is here in verse 24. Work can never supply meaning of life apart from God. However, it does become a great blessing in Him, with Him, and through Him. So it's about God's relationship in, in the mix. So He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his labor. Yet, (laughs) the enjoyment is still a what? What's he say there? Verse 24. Someone. What's he say there? What's he say about this enjoyment at the end of verse 24? Say it out loud. Thank you. It's from the hand of God. I mean, that's key. It's key. It is from the hand. You didn't have to say it so funny. Broke the series. I'm just kidding. We're cool. Uh, It's from the hand of God. It's not just the work provides this enjoyment, but instead it's from the hand of God. It doesn't come from the right employer. It doesn't come from having the right employees, from having the right amount of income, from having the right profession. It doesn't come from making lots of money. Uh, it comes from the gift of God. In light of this passage, I, uh, I mean, I'm going to do a short rabbit trail, or as they termed it on Tuesday, a deer trail. Uh, I'm going to do a short rabbit trail here, just because I just want to throw this in there. Uh, Oftentimes, I mean, engaging in college students, it is what degree does God, uh, do, I, do I need to go for? And, and everybody, well, that's not even where they begin. It's what degree am I going to get? And, and the common, well, follow your heart. What are you going to enjoy? What are you going to like doing? And, and my, my, in light of this passage, you're not going to enjoy any of it. You're going to enjoy that which God grants you to enjoy. So whether that is doing the most menial task that no one wants to do, or it's saving lives. If God doesn't grant the enjoyment, it doesn't matter. It's still in vain, and the result is still the same. So I think we go about that terribly, and I don't want to comment on how to go through that, but the point is here, according to Ecclesiastes, is that the enjoyment doesn't come from the work. It comes from the hand of God. So it doesn't matter what your job is. The enjoyment comes from the hand of God. It's not this guy. It's not, oh, I can get enjoyment from my job and then I pray that God gives me enjoyment. No, it is the enjoyment comes from God and from God alone. 
He grants the enjoyment. He gives the gift of our ability to enjoy that which He's called us to do or given us to do, the tasks He's given us to do. Now, He says something very brutal here. He says, the sinner, the one living apart from God, cannot enjoy His work. It is empty to Him. Um, He's been given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. Wow. Think about Matthew 13, 12. This will be a good verse for you to look up later. He says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Uh, I think these are closely related. Basically, apart from God, it is not just that those in God will have more. It's that those in God will have... Wait, 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 let me back up. It's not just that those in God will have more and those not in God will have less, but it's that those who are in God will have all, and those who are not in God will have none. It will be given to those who are in God. So those who are not will have nothing. It is all vanity. I mean, this is the stark contrast that we tend to mellow out of the gospel. That's why when we look at those who do not have the gospel, we see, oh, well, they're doing good. They have a good life. They're enjoying life. And then we we see no need often or at least great motivation to share the gospel with them. The fact is, is that they have nothing and we have everything. So I think both we don't understand their disparity and we also don't understand that which we have. Because the gulf is vast. So outside of God, there is no meaning, no reward, no value, only emptiness and futility. Let me give you a quick uh, thing for further research and understanding. This is part of the four-page notes that I cut out, okay? Uh, So just give you a little tidbit of information here. The word sinner there does not simply mean... uh, Someone who does something morally or ethically or biblically wrong. What it literally means is someone who has offended God. Well, you say, well, all those things would offend God. Yeah. And I think, and this is just another little piece I think you can, you can chew on this week. I chewed on it and still chewing. Um, the idea here in the sinner aspect is... Um, I, I, in, in, in my study this past week, the idea of sin, one of the things that would have been understood about someone who offends God in this passage um, would be that someone who is arrogantly working hard enough thinking that he can somehow determine the outcome of his work. And that would be something that would offend God because the outcome is totally in God's hands. And to be arrogant enough about our working, thinking that we can determine the outcome, uh, is kind of gets to a, a little bit more deeply, I think, what he is driving at here. But uh, in light of time, we'll leave it at that. And we may chew on some of that at house gathering this week. So uh, bring your thinking caps and lots of five-hour energy drink. Uh, so we can work through that. So, um, Back to the main question from the very beginning. All is vanity. Everything that we do is futile, apart from God. 
So we cannot find meaning in wisdom and knowledge. We cannot find meaning in, in hedonism or pleasure. We cannot find meaning in work. So wisdom under the sun is meaningless. Pleasure under the sun is meaningless. Work under the sun is meaningless. So is the answer then? We simply need to seek meaning and fulfillment via these items, but sprinkle God into the mix. So there's an enjoyment in work, an enjoyment in pleasure. There's obvious advantage to wisdom, but meaning is not found in simply sprinkling God into this mix. So we have to understand then, if that's not the answer, if it's not doing these things, the task that God's given us, and we just invite God to be a part, if that's not the answer, then what is the answer? What does it mean for these to find fulfillment and meaning in God, but yet still have the right understanding of these tasks? Does that make sense? I'm not saying do you have the answer, but does that question make sense? Everybody please go like this. Okay because I don't know how better to ask the question. <laughs> so, okay. So, the question to you is this. Where is the meaning and fulfillment found? Like, how does that relate to God and the stuff that He's given us to do very clearly and even enjoy in some respects? How does, the, how does that relate? Got it? So you, might, you can write down that question. The question is this, where is the meaning and fulfillment found? And, and, and here, here, so then I tagged it on my notes. It says, the question mark, where is the meaning and fulfillment found? Question mark, space, show your work, period. The thing we all hate, okay? Show your work. Show your work. I, I remember in, in, in algebra, first classes of algebra, a plus B, uh, what was it? Two plus B equals four. Well, you mean I have to go like here and do the next step, the next step? Yes. And you know what? Um, everybody complained about that. Because, dude, the answer is two. Duh, right? Two plus two equals four. What do I need to do all this other? Well, if you didn't learn how to do those steps then, then when you got to 30 steps, it made a big difference. Because you couldn't just go in your head, ah, well, that equals that. And so I think the same thing applies here. We can just throw out our churchy answers. But if we don't know how to show the work, then when we get to the harder stuff, we're not going to be able to show our work. And thus, we're probably not going to know the answer either. So let me challenge you to think through that. In light of this text, you know, other verses that, that, has, that informs you of this, and um, like that passage in Matthew, I think that can help. So... Um, Let's do that this week. I want to challenge you guys to do that this week. So um, at this time, we're going to transition to um, doing the Lord's Supper. Um, I don't want to be too hard of a turn here, but I, I want to pray for us um, during this time. Let me, let me say to us this. Um, this is, we've been thinking about some pretty hefty things over the past few weeks. Um, and I don't want us to just get wrapped up in the, the depths of this thinking and forget um, some of the applications of that thinking, some of the, the way God would have us carry this out in our lives. I mean, this should be 
uh, it was very encouraging. I, I, I may get in trouble, but my wife said to me this past week, uh, she goes, this is really modifying uh, my thinking, this book, and has modified a lot of my thinking as well. And I, so I hope that that's the translation is happening there. Uh, and so as we transfer into a time of Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper, let me remind us, um, is, uh, is for believers only, uh, is for those who are followers of Christ. Um, it's not for those who are unrepentant. So if there is a sin in your heart that you refuse to repent of, uh, Lord's Supper is not for you. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect, okay? There's a difference. Unrepentant means I see the sin, but I'm not willing to change. Repentant is, I see the sin, and God, please change me. I, I'm working towards that. Uh, that's, that that's where we all should be, right? Um, they also remind us that it's a time for us to remember the work of our Savior on the cross. Uh, it's a time to reflect on that. And, and I want to encourage us in this time to uh, just to lay our hearts before God and say, God, where... Um, where do you see these changes need to take place in my life? Um, God, you please change these things in my life, recognizing we can't ourselves. Uh, for you, it might even be just a grand time to just reflect and thank God for his work on the cross. Um, maybe just a time to... Uh, deeply reflect on the words that we've sung today, the things that speak of the cross and, and what he did in the cross. And, uh, let, me, let me caution you to not get so wrapped up in the effects of the cross for us and solely contemplate on those things and meditate on those things, but to think about the grace it took to carry the cross out. Think about the mercy of God and the amount of mercy it took from God to carry the cross out. Think about the extent of God's love that it took to carry the cross out. Think about the pain that God endured to carry the work of the cross out. Because our tendency is to always think about these things of God and then how do they flow to me. And that's not, I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm saying that when we do that exclusively, that becomes a little imbalanced. Uh, think greatly on, on God and His character um, as, we, um, as we go to this time. So I'm going to pray for us. Jess is going to play. Um, and then I'll give you further instruction on what to do after that. So. Father, um, as we enter into this time of communion, um, Father, I just ask that... Um, you would help us to understand the, the grandness, the splendor of the cross. Father, that we would see this time to remember that work that you did. Father, that we would understand it and balance both the effects that it has for us, but those effects that it has for us came from somewhere. They came from your character. They came from who you are. They came from your wisdom. 
came from your perfection and your power and your sovereignty and your love and your mercy. So, Father, in these moments, let us pray that uh, you would uh, reach in and grab a hold of our hearts and twist it so that it sets on the perfect position that you have for us. That you would be the great physician. That even in these moments, maybe, maybe sin is not necessarily the issue, or at least arson. Maybe, maybe healing, maybe amending that needs to take place in our hearts. Father, help us to understand the gospel and what you did on the cross affects everything. It affects our relationships, our job, our wisdom, our knowledge. Our it affects everything. So, Father, please have your way, whatever the situation may be, in each individual's hearts in these moments. And it's, uh, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to read to you a couple verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this. says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and, or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Um, so... At this point, I want to invite you guys can go just one row at a time um, and go grab each of the elements and return to your seats. Um, I encourage you all to remain in time of prayer during this time, and then we'll, we'll continue with the next step in a few moments. So first row wants to go, and then, and then each row after that.
1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 24 says, uh, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, but that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, uh, we remember on this day the body that was broken. The body that was bruised and torn. The body that was, uh, was beaten. But Father, even more so than that, Father, the body that bore the wrath of God. The wrath due as payment for our sins. Father, so as we partake, Father, I pray that you would um, let that truth sink in. Amen. Just take some time to, to pray to yourself. going on in that same passage, Paul says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this is, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take some time to, to thank. I'll pray for us in a few moments and then we'll take. Father, we partake in this, we proclaim the death of your son until he returns. On that day, we will, be do, we will do this no more. Father, I pray that as um, we remember the blood that was spilled, that we would remember that that blood that was spilled on the cross is the blood that covers our hearts. As the blood of the goat covered the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant, so the blood of Christ forever covers all of our sins, past, present, future. So as God looks down on our lives, He sees it through the blood. A blood that is not thin, a blood that is not weak, 
a blood that is not pathetic, but a blood that covers thick, a blood that covers forever, and a blood that ultimately brings honor and glory to your name as you redeem us sinners to live a life that brings glory and honor to your name. This blood sets us free. This blood makes us free. Father, I just beg you to remind us of those truths daily. Not that we would live in sorrow, but that we would live in freedom. Understanding that our continued living in chains is living as if the blood never happened. But instead, living each day in freedom, knowing that the blood enables us to live that free life and God paid the price. Father, thank you for the blood. Thank you for paying the price for our sin and deeming it your plan to glorify yourself for the redemption of your people. Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's take bread. Would you guys all stand? Let's sing the song together.